Zoox is a full-stack, self-driving car company. Zoox engineers work on everything a self-driving car company needs, from the physical car itself, to the algorithms running on the car, to the ride-hailing system which the company plans to use to drive around riders. Since the company started in 2014, Zoox has grown to over 500 employees. Ethan Dreyfus is a software infrastructure engineer at Zoox. He joins the show to discuss scaling an engineering team for self-driving. Machine learning was a big part of this conversation because there are so many different approaches that an engineering can take when it comes to machine learning for cars. Can you take computer vision algorithms from academic papers off the shelf and apply them to cars? What about the computer vision APIs from the cloud providers? Can you use those for anything useful? What about physical world mapping companies like Mapillary? There are so many options for build versus buy as a self-driving car company. And how do you do data labeling and data management? How do you manage the interactions across the stack? How do you manage the interactions between mechanical engineers and user interface designers and software engineers and all of the other roles that go into building a full-stack self-driving car company? We touched on some of these areas, but we barely scratched the surface of the self-driving car domain, and we hope to do that again in the near future. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. A $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive, which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean. Ethan Dreyfus, you are a software infrastructure manager at Zooks. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff. 
There may be people listening who are familiar with the self-driving car space, but don't know much about Zoox. Describe what Zoox does at a high level. Absolutely. So I would say one thing that is unique about Zoox within the self-driving car space is that we're a pure play startup. So our goal is to end-to-end solve the autonomous vehicle problem. And really what that means is, you know, we're not just about the self-driving vehicles themselves, we're about delivering mobility to people. So if you today would take an, an Uber or a Lyft to get to your location, really what we want to deliver is a wonderful experience to get from, from point A to point B. You know, not only that, we want to deliver that safely. And, and really, I think, uh, you know, that's a, a mission-driven piece of, of what we do is, is that safety piece. That's what brings a lot of us here you know, something like 37,000 people died in, in the U.S. in 2016. And, and you know, that's something that, that, you know, we have an opportunity to go after here. We can bring that down by a factor of, of 90%. And so, you know, that's what brings me to Zoox. And, and we have some really cool tech problems to solve besides. How does the Zoox strategy for building self-driving differ from some of the other players like Waymo or Tesla or Cruise? Absolutely. I think the biggest differentiator is that we are building our own battery electric vehicle from the ground up. You know, we are also doing our own AI software to make it drive. We are building a service that will allow you to summon a vehicle. You're going to own, maintain, and operate a fleet of vehicles. And we'll do that in, in every single city that, that we're operating in. So so really, it's it's this pure play startup aspect of it that is, is I think, quite unique to Zooks. And how does this difference in high-level strategy, how does it flow down to your personal work on software infrastructure? That's what I think is one of the things that I really enjoy about Zooks as a whole and, and software infrastructure. We get to touch all of the pieces involved in making this happen. So this is something that is a difficult problem. And, and if anyone tries to tell you otherwise, then they're probably not tackling all of the pieces of this problem. So as an engineer, what fascinates me is the piece of this that is that is really tackling fundamentally difficult technology. As an infrastructure manager, what that means is that I get to support the engineers and research engineers throughout Zoox in, in accomplishing this mission. That means that we as an infrastructure team get to tackle everything from building out machine learning platforms with TensorFlow, building out a supercomputing cluster, pieces on the hardware, software, and, and product design side of things, and, and really understanding how all of this, this fits together, supporting these, right? So you get a lot of these classic infrastructure problems around DevOps, around microservices. You get to build out a supercomputer. You get to understand how operations needs to work behind the hood to keep these services operating at a really, really high level of reliability. And so, you know, to me, I think what's the most exciting about this is that I get to touch a lot of these these pieces. I get to build out the team that is solving these fundamentally hard problems. And, you know, you get to push things a little bit further than you would see in, in other environments. So, you know, we have to, to, to draw from multiple disciplines to solve the problems that we're, we're trying to solve. So you'll see, I think, this kind of separation in how a lot of big data is, is handled across different different companies between the, the world of high performance computing for instance and and the sort of uh, you know Hadoop style big data world and, and ecosystem that's built up around that and so we get to draw from both of those worlds to, to solve the problems that we're trying to solve you know the scale that we're dealing with especially around data so so you look at these vehicles the sensors that they're working with it's really pretty incredible the the volume of data that you're dealing with on a real-time basis so 
you know, we want to bring the best from these multiple disciplines together to be able to, to really solve these problems. Most of our shows focus on pure software companies, and I want to get a better sense for what it means to work at a software car company. Tell me what a typical day looks like for you. Absolutely. You know, I'm not even sure that there there is such a thing as a, a typical day, but just to give you a flavor of, of what some of the pieces are, you know, so I'm walking in the door, I'm walking in a space that, you know, has a, a two-story opening to be able to to fit a large CNC robot arm. And that's a that's a prototyping device. And then I'm going to talk with the, the folks that are running that device. And, you know, maybe there's some some huge chunk of foam being carved out. And that's going to become a prototype part for, for the car or for testing out the industrial design of the, the vehicle. And I think what, what you find is that that collaboration, that communication is a really interesting piece of being in this space. It's certainly what's brought me to this space. You know, I'm a, I'm a software guy through and through. This is what I've done all my life. But coming back to the reason why I'm doing software is, is really at the end of the day to be able to, to impact the physical world to be able to, to make a difference in, in people's lives. And, and so I think you see that in a very direct kind of way when you're working with a hardware company and a software company all under one roof. You know, aside from that, we have some, some amazing devices that I just find fun. So I have a, a 3D printer at home and, and getting to work with kind of the next generation of some of these 3D printing technologies. I find that piece of it fascinating as, as well. And, you know, really it's, it's getting these questions answered. So I think another piece of, of how that interaction works out in a, in a day-to-day basis, just to, to kind of give you an example here. So we moved into this space less than a year ago that, that we're in right now in Foster City. And one of the cool things was that was the first time we had all of those pieces of hardware and all of those pieces of software under one roof. That meant that that, that that week I sat down, I'm having dinner with someone that I hadn't talked to before, someone who joined the company more recently. And so I'm talking through the, the details of how LiDAR technology works. I'm learning about something that is, is not only the specifics of a sensor that we're using, but really how he's conceptualizing the design space for this class of sensors, differences around how you pulse light out, how you receive light back. And a lot of this actually makes sense to me, the software part of, of my brain. So I'm understanding that this is, this is coding in the same way that you would do encoding of a, of a data stream to be robust to, to noise if you had some kind of noisy channel that you were dealing with. So it's really cool to get that kind of cross-collaboration. Cross and then, you know, walking you through the day-to-day of the, the software piece of it, I think one thing that's interesting about infrastructure software in particular is we become highly operational really quickly, especially as the company scales. And, you know, so, so day-to-day I'm coming in, I'm going to look at our metrics, our monitoring to be able to understand you know, how are the infrastructure systems that are critical to what we're doing, even at this stage, before we've launched into the marketplace, they're critical to the development work that our research engineers are doing. They're critical to operational work that folks on the vehicle are doing. And so I want to understand the status of those systems. I want to sort of get an update from folks on the, the DevOps side to find out if there are any things that, that I need to be concerned about there. So, you know, I'll dive into metrics, I'll dive into monitoring. And then there's a, you know, there's a real strategic piece to, to understanding what, you know, what, what we want to be doing as an infrastructure team. And I think, I think that's one of the interesting pieces of it too. Infrastructure at Zooks is, is sort of a little mini startup within, within a startup, within Zooks as a whole. So what I mean by that is that Zooks is going to be 
solving a very clear problem. We're not the kind of startup that's going to, to pivot one way or another. We're solving autonomy. That's very clear to everyone. That's been the case since our inception. And nothing about that is changing. But infrastructure within Zooks, that's something where we really have to think what are going to be the high impact problems and products that we can can deliver as a team and how are people using those those problems or how are people using those products rather and there are so many areas of software that you need to build you've got as you said there's some monitoring and analytics stuff there's of course the machine learning pipeline for gathering data and retraining your machine learning models can you just give me a breakdown of how you think about the different areas of software that Zooks divides into? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think at a top level, you can you can kind of think about the pieces of the software that are running on the vehicle and then the pieces of the software that are running to to make everything else happen. That's not quite the the infrastructure versus other components of of Zooks divide. I think really what that what that division comes down to is sort of resource constraints involved. What computers, what is the physics of what you're trying to do? So on vehicle, we have these tight compute constraints. And the, the things that you want to do with, with that on vehicle compute are solve motion planning and solve perception. So that's, that's a very high level division of the, the sort of on vehicle component to, to what, what Zooks does. Now, what does it take to actually support that from a software point of view? You know, you need to, to understand what the communication is between those different components. So that's a team that is responsible for, we've called it a couple different things, a software architecture, vehicle architecture, but currently we're calling it kind of the core team. So that's a, another component of what we do that's on vehicle. And then you kind of expand out into the, the world of what's outside of the, the vehicle. And that's where you get into infrastructure, right? So So we're everything to do with management of data off of the vehicle, management of both our cloud computing options and our on-vehicle simulation infrastructure, right? So uh, by that, I mean taking the same code that we would run on vehicle, running that really at scale uh, off of the, the vehicle world. Another piece of what we do that, that I think is, is maybe not obvious when people are looking at the problem as a whole in terms of how we, we approach vehicles I think is that it's not just the code that you need to run on vehicle. It's all of the code you need to understand how to develop the code that you're running on vehicle. So what do I mean by by that? There's a really big effort that we have to do metrics, to, to be able to really dive into anything that we see in terms of the behavior of the vehicles, classify it in a very detailed way, understand what we should be doing in terms of driving priorities. Do we want to be focusing on unprotected left turns, or are we already so good at unprotected left turns that, that we don't need to make any more improvements in that area? So, you know, I, I think at a, at a high level, some of these, these off-vehicle components, so we have the infrastructure team here. We've also got a team working on the, the simulation of the world off of the vehicle. We've got, we've got some teams working on sort of internal tooling as well, and I think that's a really interesting component of, of what we do you know, you really want to be able to visualize and dive deep into to understanding scenarios that are that are going on on the vehicles. And so so I think that's a piece that's that's really interesting as well. In my conversations with people who are working on self-driving, one distinguishing engineering feature of this space seems to be this feedback loop between 
gathering data from a car's in meat space experience, driving around, collecting data, and then the offline process of taking that vast quantity of data that a car has collected, putting it into a data platform, doing machine learning jobs to to process that data. Obviously, that that encompasses a huge space, and there's there's quote unquote data engineering that's going on on the car when it's just driving around. Like you mentioned, that there is simulations that have to be run on the car that have latency constraints, so you can't necessarily make a round trip to the cloud. But you have this large collection of problems that basically come from the fact that the car is gathering so much data, it has to be doing some processing on board for uh, real-time updates and you know, being able to maintain safety, being able to maintain the right navigation. But then you also just have this this gigantic offline procedure because you want to be able to do like high bandwidth data engineering offline. Can you give me a picture of the feedback loop between the car in meat space driving around gathering data and that data getting to the cloud? Yeah, I think that's a a wonderful question. I think that really gets at the core of what we've found it takes to be successful in this space. And really, it's it's investing in this system to go from from meat space to cloud. And and actually, I'll say, Jeff, that we're we're hybrid cloud. So it's it's cloud data centers. It's also our own data centers as well that we need to get data to. I think, you know, the first piece of that is just the data volumes that that you're dealing with. So I think you've seen something really interesting happen over the last, you know, five, 10 years in terms of the trajectory of network bandwidth. And so, you know, that goes back to kind of thinking of it from a physics and a, a, a meat space constraints point of view. You have a certain amount of bandwidth that you can get off of these vehicles. And, and so you start from, can I get the data that I need to off of the vehicle? And the answer sometimes is if I'm storing it in the format that I'm storing it, to give you an example, if I'm storing data coming off of our LIDARs in a format that doesn't make sense, I may actually blow out the bandwidth from from that data stream past what any reasonable network link is going to be capable of. And so, so this is where you're talking, you know, maybe 100 gigabits. It is possible to aggregate multiple links, but if you go too far down that road, the rate at which you're generating data, it just doesn't make sense anymore. So I would say that's the place to, to start is, is with these physical constraints on your system. Once you've sort of figured out the physical constraints, then I think you have another layer, which is collecting this data does no good if you can't make any sense of it. Uh, and that's where you take the data in. You really kind of think through what are the queries that we're going to want to be able to, to run over this data and the pieces that you're going to find within that are everything from data mining, being able to, to kind of dive in and find these, these rare scenarios. So, so an example there would be something like yellow lights, right? So looking at, at yellow lights, that's going to be an event that is intrinsically less common than red or green lights. But you want a way to, to kind of dive into your data set and pull out when you're training a machine learning model a uniform distribution from that. So that's going to inform the type of querying that you're wanting to be able to do on this data set. So, so okay, what does that mean in terms, of, in terms of designing a system, a data architecture that will support that query? The answer is that it, it really kind of shapes the way that you store the data. It shapes when you run processing on the data. So what we're going to do once we get data off of the vehicle 
is run a fixed set of sort of pre-processing. You can think of it as a, a classic ETL type of step, except as part of that ETL, we're running things like machine learning models and we're, we're answering questions about what is, what is really around in the world that the vehicle is operating in. And then, you know, kind of the other piece of it is you want to get really good at aggregate understanding of fleet behavior. And so this is where you're going to take a look at, you know, kind of everything having to do with, with behavioral metrics of the vehicles. How well are the vehicles able to make a particular type of, of maneuver? I, you know, again, it's, a, it's an unprotected left turn or it's being able to maybe nudge around, you know, poorly parked car that is sticking out into the, the lane that you're, you're currently in. These systems are made up of, of many different types of scenarios that they, they need to handle. And you really need to be able to, to do that aggregation and then rapidly answer questions about, you know, where are you prioritizing your, your development effort from an overall system point of view? And, and so, you know, I think one of the things that is, is really fascinating about this is you get to solve a lot of these problems and pull in the, the, the tools that you need to really make these other researchers, these other engineers as productive as, as you possibly can. MongoDB is the most popular non-relational database, and it is very easy to use. Whether you work at a startup or a Fortune 100 company, chances are that some team or someone within your company is using MongoDB for work and personal projects. Now, with MongoDB Stitch, you can build, secure, and extend your MongoDB applications easily and reliably. MongoDB Stitch is a serverless platform from MongoDB. It allows you to build rich interactions with your database. Use Stitch triggers to react to database changes and authentication events in real time. Automatically sync data between documents held in MongoDB Mobile or in the database backend. Use Stitch functions to run functions in the cloud. To try it out yourself today, experiment with $10 in free credit towards MongoDB's cloud products, MongoDB Atlas, the hosted MongoDB database service, and Stitch. You can get these $10 in free credits by going to mongodb.com sedaily. Try out the MongoDB platform by going to mongodb.com sedaily, get $10 in free credit, it's the perfect amount to get going with that side project that you've been meaning to build. You can try out serverless with MongoDB. Serverless is, is an emergent pattern. It's something that you want to get acquainted with if you're a developer. And getting that $10 in free credit to have a serverless platform right next to your Mongo database is really a great place to start. So go to mongodb.com sedaily, claim that credit, and thanks to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I love MongoDB. I use it in most of my projects. It's just the database that I want to use. Thanks to MongoDB. If I wanted to build a self-driving car company today, I would want to take as much software off the shelf as possible. And I have no idea what is available today. What What is out there? Are there good tools for simulations? Or is there open source software for my robotic car control? What do you have to build? And what do you 
have the option of buying in the self-driving car software world? This is a great question. First off, I think I'm going to actually recommend that you not try to start a self-driving car company, not because we don't want the competition, but because I think it's actually a really difficult thing to start now. You know, a few years ago, this was a very reasonable space to to create a startup in. Today, I think everyone kind of understands the scale of the problem. And if you're starting from ground zero, you're not going to make it there in time as compared to the, the players that are in this space right now. That said, there are pieces that exist in the market today that did not exist in the market three years ago, five years ago. And you want to be able to draw from, from as many of those pieces as you can. There are absolutely efforts, both open source and commercial, to, to solve pieces of this problem. And you know, maybe I can, can break apart some of that. Simulation, for instance, there are for sure pieces that are built out either in the research community or you know, in, in the open source community around doing simulation of, of vehicles. So that is something that you could find a version of off the shelf, but then dive into to what that means and if that will fit your use case. Many of those are actually built on on a video game, so so built on literally Grand Theft Auto, you know, which is a really nice, high performance rendering engine, does an amazing job of producing things that are, if not photorealistic, then then at least very realistic outdoor street scenes. You dive into that though, and the vehicle dynamics models are not going to be faithful to to the real world. And so then you have to ask yourself questions about what does this mean? Is this something that can, can solve the problem that I, I actually am trying to use simulation to, to solve? And the answer may be in some cases, yes. So it can do a really great job of taking your computer vision system and you know, answering questions about the performance of that, of that computer vision system. But if you're trying to test your, your motion planning system, for instance, that Grand Theft Auto-based system may not really be a, a great answer there. So I think, you know, one of the tricky things and and one of the reasons why Zooks exists in the form that it exists is we're trying to bring together these solutions, these experts from multiple disciplines. And really, there isn't something off the shelf in most of these cases that will work at the level of quality that we need to be able to do what we need to do as a company. So we've been able to bring in a lot of pieces, especially on the infrastructure side that are these, these commercial products. So, you know, an example that is something that you can absolutely bring in is some kind of machine learning framework. You can bring in Cafe, you can bring in TensorFlow. And even once you have that, you then have to sort of think through, has that solved the, the problem for me? You know, maybe you need something on top of TensorFlow, something like Kubeflow that's managing your, your workflow for machine learning. And, and I think what you find is, is these problems get bigger and bigger. And the result is you've just got to respect the scale of the, the problem of building a self-driving vehicle. You've got to bring in a team that has the, the expertise that you need to, to be able to tackle this. So one really interesting example, I think, is the mapping problem. So today, there are off-the-shelf solutions to mapping in the sense that that there's really an ecosystem of startups that are trying to provide maps for self-driving vehicles. And when you say a map, you mean something a little bit different than people might think of traditionally as a map. It looks like a street atlas. It looks like Google Maps. That's a piece of what you need. But the other piece of what you need is is an even denser 3D representation of of the world. So think something that looks more like a video game map that you might actually feed into Unreal Engine or something like that. So what do you do with with that mapping software? That map, once once you have it, it has to be really tightly tied into other components of, of your stack. So it has to be tied into how you're, you're running your, your perception system to understand where the vehicle is at any given time. 
And so I think that's a really difficult position to, to be in to try to take a mapping solution off the shelf, bring that in and say, this is going to solve self-driving for me, the mapping component of self-driving. And, and the reason is the sensors that I'm going to be using, they're different than the sensors that, that created that map. Their noise characteristics are going to be different. And they may not solve the problem in the way that I need it solved. And, you know, not only that, another interesting thing about, about mapping is you almost have to be able to solve that problem yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to be putting together all of the pieces that you need to, to do self-driving. If you're, if you're able to have vehicles operating at, at any scale at all, you can actually have them go down every single street within a, within a region that you're operating in in a pretty short period of time, just, you know, a few days. So yes, you can bring in some of these pieces, but I think it would be a really difficult way to, to tackle this problem. I don't think you'd get them to, to mesh. I think where you'd, you'd kind of lose time as a, as a startup is, is trying to do this integration effort and, and finding out that there are rough edges when you're, when you're plugging these pieces together. So it's hard to take stuff off the shelf, at least as far as fully baked software is concerned. What about when it comes to research? There are lots of papers coming out in the world of computer vision, in the world of navigation. Can you take papers off the shelf and implement them? Or do you feel like most of what you have to do on the research front, does that also come from in-house work? So we have a a world-class team doing our perception algorithms, our motion planning algorithms, and you know, what you'll find is a lot of them do have that academic background. They published in this space. They published papers that have won awards in, in this space. And so we're, we're absolutely drawing from that community. We actually have a couple professors even, and we're, we're drawing from that academic community, that academic literature, but we're taking it in a slightly different direction, which is we're trying to actually ship a commercial product. And what you'll find with a lot of the academic approaches is that they're solving a constrained version of a problem. And those constraints are really key to making that solution work. You know, maybe one great example of where the problem in an academic context versus an industrial context is a little bit different is this sort of ML research. So so let's take the computer vision example. You kind of need a benchmark data set. So, uh, you know, you'll hear performance results on, on ImageNet, for instance, reported. And so everyone is, is working really, really hard to come up with the latest model, and it's going to get a slight improvement on the ImageNet data set. And absolutely, we will be reading those papers. We'll be taking a look at them. We have a great internal reading group where, you know, we discuss the latest work from, from academic literature. But, you know, maybe the right answer to solve this problem is, is not a more complex model architecture that you may or may not be able to fit in with all of the other components that you need to deploy to the vehicle maybe the right answer is actually data set engineering. So you want to be able to double the size of your data set and see what the the performance implications of that are going to be on your model. And I think this is something that gets overlooked in the academic literature a lot is just how powerful it is to be able to reframe the problem in, in a way to be able to change what that, that data set is, engineer the mixture of examples that you're feeding into your model. And so you know, as an infrastructure team, one of the things that we do is provide a lot of workflow support for, for that kind of, of research. So you're, you're, you're wanting to enable a research engineer within Zooks to, as rapidly as possible, explore an approach, decide if it's going to be effective, decide if, if you know, initial results seem promising enough that we should continue to, to invest in it. And then you go through this longer process of 
of really optimizing that approach for for performance. And I mean performance in two senses for the the machine learning side of things. It's it's performance of the model with respect to precision and recall. So how accurate is that model? And then it's also performance of the model with respect to uh, code, right? So so time. How quickly is it? Are we able to run the process of, of feeding in data? and getting out an answer about, you know, where are all of the, the vehicles in this image, for instance. And so, you know, as you can imagine, we're not trying to solve this, this with an end-to-end neural network. There's not a single magical model that is going to take in images and radar and LIDAR and spit out a steering angle and a throttle or a target velocity, and that's just sort of the problem solved. We're structuring the problem. And, and because of this structuring, we have a lot of different pieces that we're, we're trying to fit on the vehicle. And so, so sort of everything that we're shipping to the vehicle, it has to be able to justify itself from a runtime performance point of view, from a how much GPU RAM is this thing consuming point of view, and then, and then kind of pull that back into what is the impact on overall system performance? How has it improved our metrics as far as mission success? What you're saying there about not being able to build one big model to rule them all, this is not necessarily something that would be intuitive to people listening, certainly not necessarily intuitive to me. So you've got all these inputs from the world around you and the uh, you know the past examples that the car has seen or that, that all of the Zooks cars have seen. You've got the weather conditions, you've got the current angle of the car, you've got the current surroundings. You've got the momentum and the acceleration, all these other things that are going on that you would take into account in the machine learning model that will end up, or I guess the series of models that will end up emitting, here is the plan for the car to take. Can you help frame, I realize it's a very complicated uh, subject, but... <laughs> how, how do you build an autonomous vehicle, right? How do you build an autonomous vehicle? No, no, okay. So in terms of coming to a conclusion of, what is the plan for the car to take? Like, what are the rails that the car should follow? How can we frame this in terms of if we can explain on a podcast? Is it like a sequence of, of models that you're synthesizing? But I guess it's clearly not one big model. Can you help us clarify that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first off, I think your point earlier was that it's not obvious that you can't do one big model. And I think that's true, right? So in theory, machine learning is becoming more and more powerful. In theory, it could all be one big model. I mean, humans are driving vehicles in this way. They're sort of one function almost. They're, they're, they're thinking about all of these things simultaneously. And then, you know, you, you turn your steering wheel and, and your, your foot goes up and down on, on, the, on the throttle and the brake. And so if machine learning were powerful enough today that we could just feed a bunch of inputs in and get out the output that we wanted, we would absolutely do that. And NVIDIA, for example, has done some, some great work in a sort of research sense of, of showing that you can do this at small scale. We're not trying to do this at small scale, though. We're trying to do this in a production way. And what that means with the strength of the machine learning techniques that exist today is you have to provide structure to the problem. So what, what does that structure look like? Well, you want to take an image in and you want to decide where are all of the cars in that image. You want to decide where are all of the bicyclists in that image. And so, so this is the kind of structuring that I'm talking about, where you're, you're decomposing the, the overall problem into these, these smaller problems. I think I alluded to it slightly earlier, 
there's this high level decomposition of the problem of self-driving that I think you'll find a lot of the players have, which is into the motion planning piece of it and the perception piece of it. The perception piece of it is how do you take in all of the sensor data that you have around the vehicle and output something that's a sort of semantic representation of the world. And so what that looks like is sort of a 3D notion of where the interesting things around the vehicle are. Interesting things may be lanes, interesting things may be cars, pedestrians, pedicabs, street signs, traffic lights. So you want that level of semantic understanding. And then, you know, sometimes you want to go even deeper than that. So it's great to have a system that will give you a perfect understanding of where all of the people around the vehicle are. That's not actually sufficient. You want to have some notion of where those people are, are headed in the future as well. That's another piece to kind of structuring this problem. And then once you have this semantic understanding of the world around the vehicle, you feed that into a motion planning system. And what that motion planning system is going to do is say, given what's around the vehicle, given how that will evolve into the future, what do I do to achieve my mission goal? And when we talk about a mission, it's sort of a, a, a simple type of thing. That mission is actually just, you know, get to a specific street address, right? Get to the, the Caltrain station, whatever it is. And so, you know, that's a high level thing. It's, it's a long way off in time. And you have to translate that down into what does that mean over the next 10 seconds, the next 15 seconds, the next 30 seconds in terms of, of how I want to react? Should I be maybe initiating a lane change now because I know I'm going to have to make a, a left turn coming up in a, in a minute or two? And so, so that's the, the sort of motion planning piece of it where you're, you're trying to decide your high level goals. How do they translate down into a, a lower level goal that will meet constraints like driving legally on the road that are, that are hard constraints and, and soft constraints like getting comfortably and quickly to, to the destination that you're trying to get to? So this is a very big space, but does that give you a little bit of that sense of, of how the, the problem decomposes? Yes, I feel much more comfortable. Now let's revisit the question of simulation, because this is one of these gigantic areas where you've got so many trade-offs you can explore, and one of those trade-offs is cost. I've heard that these simulation platforms can be really, really expensive to run, so you have to be somewhat judicious in, in terms of what you are simulating, how aggressively you're simulating, like what geos you're going to simulate. Tell me more about your strategy for simulation, how that fits into the overall Zooks strategy. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I think Zooks has thought about for a long time is is the simulation problem. We've had a team dedicated to to that effort since pretty close to our, our inception. And the trade-offs that you're talking about it really is that that performance question. And, and the thing that it ties into that I think is maybe not obvious, this is really software release engineering. It's understanding what are the validation steps that we need to do to deploy a piece of software. So that might be a set of, of unit tests. That might be some integration tests. If I'm, if I'm releasing a, a microservice, I might want to, to do a canary deploy and you know, watch some health checks for a while before that, that release finishes. This is the same problem that we're trying to solve with simulation, but for, for self-driving vehicles. So it's a piece of the, the solution to this problem. So we absolutely still have, have unit tests that run at one layer. And then above that, we have these, these integration tests that, you know, that may have simulation as a, as a key piece of how they're doing what they're doing. And, and simulation, you can have these differing levels of fidelity. So maybe you really only need a, a sort of 2D road network type notion of the world. That's going to give you a, a whole set of problems from, say, the, the motion planning 
algorithms that you'll you'll be able to surface those problems with that simulation, but that's a 2D simulation and it's cheaper than, for example, a full sort of 3D model of the world. But if you don't have that 3D model of the world, how are you possibly going to understand how your perception and vision system is going to handle occluded pedestrians suddenly, you know, walking out from behind a, a parked vehicle, for instance, right? So that's where you need that that sort of next level of, of fidelity and simulation. And those get expensive. And that's that ties very closely to what we do on the infrastructure team is we've got to be able to scale out some of these techniques. We don't want other teams within Zooks to be limited by the compute side of things. We want to give them the most they can possibly have so that they can use some of these expensive techniques because 3D simulation is a really useful technique to be using. And we need to be able to do it at scale. We need to have a portfolio of scenarios that we're simulating that are going to be representative of the, we call it the operational design domain, the region, either geographically or in terms of sort of behaviors that that we know the vehicle is capable of handling that really covers a, a very broad spectrum of different scenarios. So, you, you know, I, I think you've, you've hit on the trade-off here and the hard part of it, you know, we're willing to throw the most compute that, that kind of exists within the world. We're willing to throw supercomputing levels of, of compute at this problem, but we can't throw more compute than that at it. So how do you be judicious about the, the usage of that compute? And how do you make sure you're getting the most out of every usage of that, of that compute? We are all looking for a dream job. And thanks to the internet, it's gotten easier to get matched up with an ideal job. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified job seekers with inspiring companies. Once you have been vetted and accepted to Vettery, companies reach out directly to you because they know you are a high-quality candidate. The Vettery matching algorithm shows off your profile to hiring managers looking for someone with your skills, your experience, and your preferences. And because you've been vetted and you're a highly qualified candidate, you should be able to find something that suits your preferences. To check out Vettery and apply, go to vettery.com slash sedaily for more information. Vettery is completely free for job seekers. There's 4,000 growing companies from startups to large corporations that have partnered with Vettery and will have a direct connection to access your profile. There are full-time jobs, contract roles, remote job listings with a variety of technical roles in all industries, and you can sign up on Vettery.com slash SEDaily and get a $500 bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Get started on your new career path today. Get connected to a network of 4,000 companies and get vetted and accepted to Vettery by going to Vettery.com slash SEDaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a new sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Is your perspective on, on simulation, is it more that this is a tool that's useful for testing before release process or do you also see it as useful for training data because i remember reading this article i think it was in the atlantic about waymo and about how simulation is so core to how they even generate training data like they'll you know they'll kind of map the physical world and then they will run 
simulations of the sort of this is sort of like the uh, the Grand Theft Auto example, you know, just run simulations of the way that the car would behave in that simulated environment that and and that's in order to gain more training data because it's like okay now we've got training data in the real world and we've got additional training data in the simulation that's a little bit different than the kind of integration test or unit test approach to simulation yeah so i made the analogy to a release process because i i think in in many respects it it is the the same kind of problem but but actually the stack keeps going up from there so you have things like hardware in the loop test so that's the release process piece of it there's also what you're talking about, which is a development process. And you absolutely have to optimize for that for that development process. And so that will look like iteratively an engineer on the planner team or the vision team is, is making a change. They want to understand the impact of that change. And they want to do it without having to consume a lot of time, right? So as soon as you want to run a test on a, on a vehicle, that's going to be a much more costly process. And you want that that development workflow to be as, as short as possible. I mean, so so the the web development world now is amazing because I type a change and it's it's live on my my hot reloading view of the website that I'm that I'm editing. You want to get as close as possible to that kind of iterative experience for someone who's developing a a planner algorithm or a, a vision algorithm. And then and then there's this this extra piece of it, which is the piece you're talking about, which is Simulation can actually sort of push forward what we're what we're capable of doing for computer vision algorithms, for instance, because it gives us it gives us this wonderful, perfect labeled ground truth. So, again, I was talking earlier about how you decompose this problem into multiple pieces. You decompose it into, for example, finding all of the vehicles in an image to do that. What you machine learning, the the lifeblood of a machine learning algorithm is is data. And there are some approaches, fine, that, that can, can handle unlabeled data. But by and large, the approaches that, that work the best are going to consume huge amounts of labeled data. What this means is that I have an image that I'm able to feed in where I know the ground truth. I know where all of the cars are in that image. And to get that is, a, is an expensive process. You have to have a human tell the, the system what are the boxes, right? So select a corner, select another corner. And that, that kind of labeling is important. If it's a video game world, though, I know the extent of, of that vehicle. I've rendered that vehicle, and I can render the, the sort of bounding box corners of that vehicle and get this, this wonderfully perfect ground truth. We've actually published a couple papers in this area, and we've shown that, that you can extend these systems. You can go beyond just using the raw data, labeling the raw data that's, that's coming in from the real world. You can use data that is produced in a simulated world and improve your results on the real world. And it's sort of not obvious that, that that would work for sure. That depends on the fidelity of your simulation. What we've shown is that we've been able to get our simulation to the level of fidelity you need for that type of approach to be helpful as well. Okay, now that we've framed the self-driving problem uh, to, I think, a reasonable extent, we can talk <laughs> a little bit more about data infrastructure. Data infrastructure. I, I love it. That's my bread and butter. Exactly. It's much closer to my bread and butter, too. I'm so out of my comfort zone talking about self-driving car software because I've done so so few shows on it. I'm really glad we're, we're changing that here. On the data infrastructure side, like we've done shows with Netflix and, and Uber and some other car, some other companies that feel a little bit more familiar to to what what I understand at least. But even here, you're in a unique position because you can take this really long term perspective. You're not like having day to day 
firefighting operations where, you know, like people, like at Uber, for example, I mean, they it's a production system that needs to be ready for people right now. We need this data platform yesterday. We've got services that are live. We've got things we need to build on top of the data platform. We've got logging. We've got monitoring. And that stuff is also important for you. But you can take a bit of a longer perspective because there's a lot of money in in the bank and and it's a service that's that's not really released to consumers yet so it's kind of still in the lab and you can take this longer term approach tell me how you frame your approach to data infrastructure and get into to some of the tooling that you're using yeah so one of the questions that i had to answer you know back 3 years ago when we were first creating an infrastructure team at zooks is is really what does that team do what problems can we solve to to make a difference to to this company and so you know i think one of the first places that that we found that we could could really dive in and and make a difference was optimizing for the developer experience the researcher experience making those workflows as, as fast as they, they possibly can be. And, and I think having this almost sort of user experience focused viewpoint for a product that is, is internally facing rather than externally facing, that's been, been kind of the key to, to doing what we do. Now, you know, there are pieces to it that, that are operational already. And, and I think what you find is on the infrastructure side, we got to that, that operational problem domain much sooner than maybe some some other parts of, of Zooks. And, and the reason is, as soon as we were able to successfully solve problems for other engineers within Zooks, those become a critical part of those engineers' workflow, meaning that if that service is down, I've now impacted the productivity of a significant portion of, of the company. And, and so, you know, I built out an SRE team here within infrastructure at, at Zooks, and that's been key. That that reliability component has been key to to what we're doing. That said, I also get the opportunity to kind of step back and say, where are things going from a more traditional infrastructure point of view? What are some some long term trends, either in in hardware or software, that that drive what we should be doing from a from a solutions point of view? So we've really wanted to, to tie into some of the best practices around, you know, DevOps, being able to pull from microservices and really think hard about a rapid release and, and, and a, a robust software engineering practice and bring that to, to what we do within an infrastructure team. Because as soon as something that we've done has been successful within Zooks, that is critical infrastructure. Yes, it's not serving a customer, but our customers are, are other engineers today and, and, and their productivity is key. Can you give me a description of some of the tool, tools that you're using? So maybe cloud providers, open source tools, I don't know, it's Spark or Flink or TensorFlow. Give me some sense of the lay of the land. Yeah, so, so I think one of the pieces that we tried to solve really early as an infrastructure team is data pipelines. So you can think of this sort of as an ETL type pipeline where data has come in off of the vehicle and you want to be able to run some type of data processing on it. So the way we've chosen to model that, it's not the only way, but the way we've chosen to model that is as a data pipeline. So there you can think of a system like Airflow, for instance, is is one example of of a workflow management system. Uzi is another example. And so that is sort of the high level representation of the processing that we're trying to do on this data coming in. And then the thing that you have to do is schedule that compute job in, in some way. And so there we, we did a lot of evaluation around the best way of, of scheduling a group of machines. And this is a problem that is, is absolutely one where we want to draw from 
the industry from pieces that are out there. And so we were looking at things like Kubernetes, Mesos. We ended up using a component called Slurm that's actually coming out of the HPC world. And so, so this would be something maybe a little bit more akin to a resource manager. So, so different ways of slicing and dicing this problem. What Slurm is all about is taking a job with some specification for the resources required for that job and allocating, packing those jobs onto a group of machines with different capabilities. And so, so we've kind of built out some tooling, some integration on top of that to make it really easy to use within Zooks. You know, one of the things that we do is we do all of our development on, on GitHub. And so we, we built out some integrations between Slurm and our internal GitHub to make it really easy to sort of kick off a job that is, is based on a specific version of the, the software that, that we're using. But at the end of the day, you know, we need that component that is doing, doing the resource management. And I think, you know, one of the questions that I've gotten is, why use that, which is a little bit less known coming out of, of the HPC world than, than something like Kubernetes, which especially the last couple of years has, has gained a tremendous amount of momentum. I think there's some, some detailed answers to that that become interesting for the types of problems that we're tackling. So we're really focused on using GPUs as compute accelerators. This is one of those long-term trends where we do get to take that long view a little bit and say, compute is becoming available in compute accelerators in a way that hasn't been the case in the past necessarily. I've been able to do an awful lot with x86 CPUs and and that architecture has been a a, a stable platform. I haven't had to worry about adding in something that is a very different compute model, a very different piece of hardware. Well, now I do. And that means I'm having to think of the computers, the nodes that I'm running on, the servers that I'm running on as themselves mini networks. And, And because the HPC world has been doing this for a long time, we were driven a little bit to to try to draw from that world. So what I mean by a mini network is GPUs themselves are all compu- uh, communicating with the host CPU, and they're doing it over the PCIe bus, or in some cases, there's a, there's an NVIDIA proprietary standard, NVLink, that, that is also a communication path that's involved. So you have to be able to be aware of the, the impact of scheduling a job that might run on multiple GPUs on GPUs that have a longer communication path from a, a PCIe topology point of view. You know, that's something that was baked into the software because Slurm has been used for a very long time in this in this HPC world. You know, that said, nothing bad to say about Kubernetes. We are using it internally and it's, it, you know, the momentum behind that community is incredibly strong right now. And I think it may actually start to develop some of these capabilities in, in, in the long run. I think, you know, it, it is already very possible to, to schedule GPUs with, with Kubernetes, for instance. It's just some of these more detailed cases that are that are a little bit difficult to do there. So there's so many questions I would like to ask you about data infrastructure. Maybe we can do another show in the future about this, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you some questions that require baseless speculation. Of course. So what will the self-driving market look like in five years? Oh, in five years. So I think what you'll find is that these are a part of everyday life in five years in a way that is is sort of hard to appreciate in the same way that understanding what having a cell phone part of your everyday life would have meant five years before they they became common. Or, you know, maybe even a better analogy, understanding what a smartphone would be like five years before the iPhone. You know, I, I actually don't think we're, we're sort of five years before the iPhone in the sense that the, the first products are not are not five years out, but I, I think we're far from going to be past from from the sort of ubiquitous stage where people completely forget about these things. So I think five years from now, these will be a part of everyday life for many people, maybe most people even, but but they won't be everywhere. There will be limits to these systems still. 
So we talk a lot about this notion of an operational design domain. This is this notion that there may be pieces of the the overall driving problem that just don't make sense to go after from a from a commercial from a business point of view. So, uh, you know, an example here is I've seen lots of of questions around, well, I'm never going to to let a self-driving car drive me because it's not going to be able to handle snow like I could in a mountain road on a mountain road in rural Colorado. And and you know, maybe that's right for the systems that are going to be out in the next couple years. Probably if we were to focus in on that, we could solve that problem. But is that the right problem to be going after commercially? I think the answer is 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 no. Uh, you know, the the volumes of of travel, the volumes of of trips there, they're less common. So I think, you know, looking out five years, what you'll see is it's a part of everyday life. You see it many places, but it's not everywhere. And these systems are getting better really, really rapidly. It's still a very active area of, of development. And, you know, I think one thing that's very cool about that for people that are that are kind of coming into the space now is there's a career here. It's not like we're a couple years out from being done. It's, it's sort of a couple years out from the, the start of this. And, and there'll be some very fierce competition in this space, too. I think, you know, you'll see... A handful of players, there'll be a real shakeout where folks that haven't been able to achieve the results that the, the top couple players have been able to achieve, you know, may not be able to, to sort of continue to, to operate. There'll be some consolidation that happens in the in the industry. And then, you know, folks that are able to really deliver the, the technology in a way that you see from, from a place like Zooks, you know, we'll be continuing to iterate on what we're doing, tackling more and more problems that are these these pieces that you know, are maybe not in that MVP product, but but expanding the the operational design domain that we're capable of operating within. There were a number of years where the only people you would hear about who were working on self-driving cars were like somebody that worked in a Stanford lab with Sebastian Thrun, or I don't know if that guy was at MIT or whatever, wherever he's from. He was, he, yeah, he was Stanford. Stanford, right. Or or like somebody who was in the MIT robotics lab or somebody that was like a higher up at Google who happened to get an in at Waymo or like, you know, these superstar engineers. And I think there's probably a lesser understood side of self-driving where you can be a pure software engineer with a background at pure software companies. There is a need for you in the self-driving car industry today. So if there's engineers who are listening to this and and they're like, that's not me, like I can't do self-driving engineering. Do you have any advice for people on like how to get into the self-driving car industry or like, are there any hurdles or like how, like how should a, a terrestrial engineer think about this? That's a great question. So I think what isn't appreciated sometimes is that even the, the teams that are comprised of a lot of people from that background a big chunk of, of what those people are doing looks more like traditional software engineering. So you are building out software systems that have to be reliable, that have to be scalable. Other engineers need to be able to, to read and understand your code. It has to deal with data in ways that are, you know, maybe feel the same as, as dealing with data that's a, a clickstream for an advertiser or something like that. So, you know, you absolutely need this component of, of what we're doing in terms of how to get into the industry. I talk to a lot of people that, that haven't thought deeply about the self-driving space when they're, when they're applying to us, when they're, when they're first talking to, to me, for instance. And, and I think it is fine to come in with that background. So I would say, give it a try. You know, there may be more opportunities sooner than you think. 
And then what I see is as sort of an even better nice to have is someone that's that's sort of thought about this space, read some of the news articles that are out there, understand trade-offs and different approaches. So, you know, really I would say the first place to start, more than building up a specific skill set, I mean, sure, there, there are technologies and tools I would like people to be familiar with coming in, you know, having people that 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 understand data engineering, but I think the problem space is so big. The thing to remember is come in with an interest in the space, understand the impact of what we're trying to do with self-driving vehicles, and then see where your skills that you already have can be applied to that problem. So if you can do that extra step of, of thinking a little bit, then I think you'll find a place for the, the skills that you have. It, you know, if you have a really strong DevOps background, for instance, I, I absolutely am looking for, for people with that skill set. If you have a really strong background in, you know, maybe formally verified software. I mean, that one's a little bit different, but it's a it's a world where we need people with that skill set. If you have a strong background in microservices, we absolutely need people with that microservices background being able to deploy the services that are operating the fleet of vehicles that that we have. So I would say, you know, the question is almost not how do you upskill to be able to get into the self-driving industry, but where can you apply the skills that you have how do you think enough about it to, to kind of understand how those skills will, will fit into what you're doing? Ethan, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Wix.com. Build your website quickly with Wix. Wix code unites design features with advanced code capabilities, so you can build data-driven websites and professional web apps very quickly. You can store and manage unlimited data. You can create hundreds of dynamic pages. You can add repeating layouts, make custom forms, call external APIs, and take full control of your site's functionality using Wix code APIs and your own JavaScript. You don't need HTML or CSS. With Wix code's built-in database and IDE, You've got one-click deployment that instantly updates all the content on your site, and everything is SEO-friendly. What about security and hosting and maintenance? Wix has you covered, so you can spend more time focusing on yourself and your clients. If you're not a developer, it's not a problem. There's plenty that you can do without writing a line of code, although, of course, if you are a developer, then you can do much more. You can explore all the resources on the Wix code site to learn more about web development wherever you are in your developer career. You can discover video tutorials, articles, code snippets, API references, and a lively forum where you can get advanced tips from Wix code experts. Check it out for yourself at wix.com sed. That's wix.com sed. You can get 10% off your premium plan while developing a website quickly for the web. To get that 10% off the premium plan and support Software Engineering Daily, go to wix.com sed and see what you can do with Wix code today. Wow!